Welcome to those of you watching online. It's great to see you. Um, if you're listening on Hope FM, it's great to have you with us as well. Um, it's great to, if you're in the room, thank you for being here. This morning we're in a series called Countercultural Jesus. Count, Jesus was counterculture. Did you know that? We're going to find out more about that over the coming weeks. And today we're going to be in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you turn to it. Um, if you haven't, uh, it will come up on the screen, but I'd encourage you to find it either on a device uh, or a Bible, and then you can op- have that open in front of you. And today I'm talking on Jesus and or on the good life. And I wonder what you think of when I say the words, the good life. Where does your thoughts, where does your head, where does your thinking go? Maybe it goes to some of these on the screen. Maybe it goes to um, the 70s BBC sitcom, The Good Life. Some people are nodding. Barbara and Tom wanted to get away from the rat race into the simplicity and a self-sustaining allotment garden. It won awards. Well done, Barbara and Tom. Felicity Kendall. Maybe it's about being young and free. Maybe that's your good life. Maybe that was when it was good for you. Maybe it's the rich playground, the yachts, the, the private jets, the Instagram likes. Maybe that's your good life. Or maybe you aspire to be a YouTuber who could uh, branch out into all different areas as his kind of following grows. Maybe that, to you, is the good life. Maybe it's a desert island on a beach with no one else, just the sunshine and your Bible. I wonder how many of you went in your mind, to the good life is living as closely to Jesus as I can. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning because Jesus has good and life for us today. We've recently had a new person, haven't we, in administration? I mean, in fact, we've had two. We've had a new king uh, after our amazing queen, And we've had a new prime minister. She comes into power, didn't she? And even before she did, she laid out something of her thoughts, her plan, her policies, a manifesto, if you like, about how we're going to continue to to live out life in this nation. You may agree with them, you may not. Let's not go there this morning. And only time will tell as to what they result in. But nevertheless, she's got something of a framework of how to live for us in this nation. And in the same way, in this passage, Jesus is laying out a way of life. He's laying out the Jesus way. He's laying out how to live a good life. And it's called the Beatitudes The beautiful attitudes, the beautiful way to live. And as we read this in Matthew 5, I want you to 
Keep an eye out for just how countercultural this really is. Matthew 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd, starting at verse 1, he went up onto the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, <laughs> read that again, Ross. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That sounded much better. I was thinking, is there a bit missing in my Bible? No, I just read it wrong. This is as counterculture as it comes. John Stott said this. He said, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's preaching a sermon on a hill, the Mount, and he starts with the Beatitudes. John Stott says, is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. And I believe as we look at this today, I just get a sense that God wants to realign us again. He wants to bring us back to, to this way. But some of us are way off. Some of us are near. All of us regularly need to be realigned. Let's have a think about how the crowds would have heard it on that day. If you look at Matthew 4, the chapter before this, we read that Jesus has just called his disciples. First of all, he's, he's got a bunch of followers around him. Then he goes about, as he does, doing incredible things, proclaiming the good news. He's healing the sick. He's, uh, people are bringing to him the demon-possessed so that they can be made well, as it were. They can be free. People are hearing about him and the news is spreading into multiple regions. We read of Syria. We read of large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan. Multiple different cultures from different places are coming to hear Jesus because of the kind of uproar that he is causing because of who he is. And then Jesus, in this kind of supercharged atmosphere, people with different opinions and different places, he comes to them 
and then he sits down. I love that bit. It's the posture of a rabbi, and he sits down because he's going to teach them something pretty incredible. What are they expecting? Well, some of them would have been expecting that we just need to go back to the law and the tradition. We need to take ourselves out of this world like the Pharisee. We need to be pure in everything we do, at least outwardly anyway, and and remove ourselves from all of the unclean kind of stuff and people, and then we'll get back to, to what it is to live a good life. Some people are saying they just don't care. Either way, I don't care what happens. There's people like that all around us, aren't they? I just don't care. Don't care if we go backwards or if we go forwards. There's other people saying, we need a revolution. In fact, we need a warrior. We need someone to come and and smack the Romans as they deserve so that we can have another rule and another reign that would be better than what we've got already. They expected a warrior. And what did they get? They got blessed are the peacemakers. They got blessed are those who are meek, those who weep, mourn over the state of people's hearts and the state of what they see in the world. How are we hearing it now? Well, I'm not sure there's that much difference. We've got people from all sorts of different places, from all sorts of different cultures, thinking all sorts of different things. Some of them don't care, some of them do. Some of them think we should go back to where it was before. Some of them think we need something completely new and contrasting. How are we hearing it in the church? Well, when we look at our culture out there and we look at our church in here and the church generally, the worrying thing is that they don't always look that different. You see, the culture can infiltrate into the church. And the church lives out the culture in the culture and they don't look any different to the culture. And in a sense, therefore, when you look at our world that's full of secularism, it's full of materialism, it's full of individualism, it's full of um, another ism which I can't think of right now, it's off the chart. And as a result in the church, we battle and we struggle. And in many ways, we've lost some of our identity of who we are meant to be. We've lost some of how we are meant to live. We've lost our moral kind of fortitude. And we've lost, therefore, what we are meant to and intend to reflect to the world around us. Something of our witness. And we know these things in this passage. (laughs) But as I've realized, as I've studied this, we don't always practice them. And I I believe God wants a, a reset of our hearts this morning to his way, the best way, the blessed way. What's being offered is that good life. It's the blessed life. Nine times, blessed, blessed blessed. If you say blessed, it sounds more holy, doesn't it? So blessed or blessed. Blessed. What is this? It's this good life. At its very lowest, it's happiness. But it's not just happiness. That's a weak translation of this word, makarios. Because happiness is subjective. 
Happiness can go up one day and down the next. Happiness is dependent, isn't it, on circumstances and situations. But makarios is different. This is the highest type of well-being. <laughs> this is the highest type of joy that there is possible to imagine. This is inner transcendent bliss. And it's what the world needs. And it comes from Jesus. <laughs> you see, in this moment, he is asking the question that everyone is asking then and asking now. Where do I find happiness? Where do I find contentment? Where do I go for true joy? Jesus says, the life that you are looking for, I have, and I can give to you. He says, the kingdom of heaven can be yours. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's like the bookends of the Beatitudes. We get it in verse three, we get it in verse 10. Either end is this promise of a, a sense that we're gonna be in his kingdom. We're gonna become one of his. It's an amazing promise. And it's what's on offer for these people if they choose to receive it. How do we receive it? Well, it's from God and it's through Jesus. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Jesus is the king, you see. And in this moment, he's ushering in a new kingdom. There's a new manifesto, new mandate for how to live. And because he's a different king, he brings a different kingdom. And what I want you to know about this kingdom, that we don't have to endeavor to strive to be all of these beautiful attitudes these are not something that we have to do to drum up ourselves. They are things to become as we behold Jesus. And guess what? He loves to bring these things out of us as we get to him. Right, I'm gonna drill down just on three fairly quickly. And, and what I, where I'm heading here is into communion so that we can around that table, realign to these amazing things that Jesus is asking us to come into. First, I wanna talk briefly about the poor in spirit. I've just taken three, I couldn't take them all. There's like 700 sermons in this passage. What is the poor in spirit? Well, it's not just about material gain, it's actually more about spiritual pain. It's a sense of destitution. It's a sense like this beggar face down in the floor with nothing that is that poverty of spirit that we, Jesus says we, we will be blessed if we are poor in spirit because we are so therefore dependent on him and not on ourselves. You see, in that beggar there, there is no kind of self-righteousness, in a sense. He's got nothing. And the reality is, as unsaved humans before a holy God, we've got nothing. And in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, 
We have to be destitute in our spirit to know that we need a savior. It requires a personal acknowledgement of spiritual poverty that is nothing of us and all of him. That's how we enter a relationship with Jesus, isn't it? As we confess our brokenness, as we recognize we've got no way we're gonna get there unless he, a savior, does something for us. Bible says that it's faith by grace. His mercy lavished upon us. What is this? In its essence, I'm gonna give you the opposite. It's selflessness. It's the opposite of pride, which is all about us, rather than him or anyone else. I want you to know this morning, I struggle with pride. You see, when we repent and confess of our sin at the very beginning of our journey in Christ, that shouldn't be the very last time, or the first time, it is the first time, it shouldn't be the last time that we repent and confess. And yet so often we forget how we're supposed to live in him. I was reading something and I've called it the prideometer all right, you're gonna hate it, because I did. And uh, just a few things that will give an indication if you're struggling with pride or not, all right? So you ready for this? You're not. <laughs> an indication you might struggle with this if you're in a conversation, you're waiting for the conversation to finish so you can say your thing. Oh, man, that is me. I do that. That you don't confess sin unless you're caught out with it, or you're nearly caught out with it. When you're listening to other people's problems, you sometimes get a sense of, I'm glad I'm not them, and that you feel better about yourself as a result of listening to them. This one, oh. You're doing God's work, without God, without prayer, without coming to him. Bible says that God opposes the proud, (laughs) but he gives favor to the humble. This is humility that Christ our Lord showed us in an incredible way that we are to model, that we are to live in, and we are to know a blessed life by working out. Number two, the blessed attitude. Number two is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, these are so incredible. As you're hearing them, I hope you're getting something of what I've been living with this week. (laughs) This is the sense that once we've been emptied of all ourself, we can get filled with all of him. I wonder what you hunger and thirst for. When I'm hungry, right, or thirsty to be fair, I'm pretty single-minded about getting to that shop or getting to the cupboard in the kitchen. 
Is that like you with righteousness? About what is good and right and just? And the thing about this righteousness, I think Jesus is saying it starts in our hearts. It starts about a personal purity. But it doesn't stop there. As we've heard in this A21 anti-trafficking, there is unrighteousness everywhere in our culture. We're supposed to yearn for this, to hunger for it, to thirst for it, like we haven't eaten for days. Quick John Piper quote, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, although it might be. It's the primetime dribble of triviality that we drink in every night. Wow. John Piper. Jesus is wanting to align us so that we might hunger and thirst for the things of him, for righteousness. Number three. I mean, this one, if you, if you thought, I mean, I, sometimes I just wonder, like, do you ever wonder this? Why does anyone follow Jesus? Like, this is, no wonder the disciples were saying, this teaching is tough. And some of them departed. This is huge, isn't it? And then if that wasn't enough, he ends with those who are persecuted. He said, even if you've, you've kind of got all this, the reality is because you've got all that, I think you're gonna be a witness to the world. You're gonna be counterculture to the point that people aren't gonna like it. Guess who that sounds like? It sounds like Jesus. They killed him for it. He says, you're gonna be persecuted on account of me. <laughs> Jesus, we're gonna be physically perhaps beaten. We're gonna be verbally perhaps abused. We're gonna be emotionally damaged to some degree because we're going for this life that is so-called the blessed life of true happiness, the highest joy that you can ever have on earth and in heaven. And he says, yeah, that's exactly it. But you need to know this, that therefore don't be surprised by it, Peter says. Don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that's coming your way to test you as if something strange were happening. No, he says, enter into it, but won't you know that the outcome of this, he says in verse four of that same passage in 1 Peter 4, is so that the spirit of glory and of God will rest on you. I want the spirit of glory and God to rest on me. And in that, Jesus promises you will find joy. It's inexplicable, isn't it? In the face of suffering. And you will find gladness. And great. Will, you, will your reward 
be in heaven. You see, this is the thing, isn't it? We just got such an earthly outlook on life. And yet Jesus here is, is talking about eternity in heaven and the joy that is set before us. I'm going to ask the band to come up because I desperately want to finish because I just believe God wants to work in us. These are hard teachings, all right? In our sense of purity before God, in our sense of poverty of spirit towards him and others, and in our sense of being persecuted because we are actually different and a witness of him and for him. And as I've been talking, my, my greatest fear is that you feel condemned, which leads to shame and to guilt. My greatest hope by the Holy Spirit is maybe what you're actually feeling is conviction, which leads to repentance and confession. That you would turn, literally turn away from the things in your life that don't align with the blessed life that Jesus is outlining to us here. And so the way we're going to do that now, in, by way of response, is by breaking bread together, by coming around the table. And just as the band start playing, I want to remind you of a scripture that in Romans 12 that says, don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. That's what Jesus does. He is transformative for us. He transforms us from death to life. He transforms us from, from sin and Satan into his family. He, by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforms us from slaves to sin into slaves of righteousness. And the Bible says that those who confess their sins, he, God, will be faithful and just. And he will purify you, he'll purify you from all that unrighteousness so that you can pursue him again in a holiness and a righteousness that is from him and for him in your life. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to come and get the bread and the wine. We have two tables at the front. We have tables at the back. I think that's where the, where the uh, gluten-free is. And I'm really conscious and disappointed in myself to some degree that we've only got a few minutes to do this before some of you will need to go and pick your children up. So I want you to 
just start thinking, even now, what has God just put his finger on? And I want to remind you, what does confession look like? It means admitting that you might have might be a little bit out of kilter here. It means coming to him and asking him to forgive you. And then asking you, him to cleanse you, if you like, from that unrighteousness by the power of the Spirit so that you can live for him in this blessed life in a new way. So you've already started coming and I love that. Come and grab bread and wine. They're in the same cup. And then we're going to break bread together. In fact, I'm not even going to lead you. I want God to lead you by the power of the Spirit. We're going to use these however many minutes you've got to do business with God, to come before Him. And when you're ready, when you have dealt with some of this stuff that you feel you want to deal with today, and it is a day of freedom, it is a day for increased joy and increased blessed life for you, you take the bread and the wine. Here's one for you, okay? If you want to be really countercultural and you want to break the power of the evil one over your life, then confess your sin to someone else in this place this morning. Even before you take the bread and the wine and God will honour you as you break the power that it has over your life and as you come afresh to Him and in the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the fellowship of the believers, unity, grace and love will flow. Let's do business with God. You break bread, it's His body. Drink the wine, it's His cleansing blood for you. And I'm gonna step down.